Okay, we are here with Oliver Studd and Joshua the American. <laughs> Joshua Brockner, yes, the American. Joshua Brockner, who is recently moving to uh, Dubai for um, Jenny. Correct. And he'll be joining me to interview Oliver, who's the founder of uh, Valhalla Networks. Great, thank you for having me here. It's lovely to join you on the podcast. <laughs> it is lovely to have you here and so excited about uh, your project with uh, Richard Berner. And um, I thought we'd start off by uh, outlining what problem it is that you're solving and the challenges being faced in finance today. Yes, so the current issues with the banking system, really, it's one to do with education. People don't understand the importance of banks. Even today, um, I joined HSBC a few years ago, um, ready for my graduate scheme, one of those eager graduates coming out of university. Um, luckily, didn't do an economics course, just did a banking master's, and that's where I met Professor Richard Varner, funnily enough. Anyway, so I joined HSBC, and one of the first um, things I was taught in my induction was that banks are financial intermediaries. Absolute rubbish, um, by the way. So this guy goes up on the stage, an external company, puts a slide on the screen, first slide, and he's telling the graduates um, of this bank that banks are financial intermediaries. And I thought, I'm not doing this. So I put my hand up and said, how can that be true when in 2014 banks are proven to create money out of nothing? They're the creators of money. And this guy had no idea what I was talking about and had to continue doing a 30-minute slideshow on how banks are financial intermediaries after I've just proved him wrong. So people are being taught incorrect stuff. Even the bankers, 99% of bankers, don't understand the role of banks in society and the importance of them and how they actually work. They just see them as deposit-taking uh, machines that move money from one person's account to another. But they're not. They're the creators of money. They're more like Harry Potter and wizards. You know, their banking license is like their magic wand and they use it to create new money. And this power impacts people's everyday life, which industries do well, which ones do worse, and, and which, um, what happens to the markets, which asset markets booms, and then when there's a bust. It's all down to the banking system and the central banks who control when money is created and which industries it goes for. So that's the key problem, is people don't understand that. Then the second issue is you have this sort of centralizing effect that's going on where many banks are either being acquired by the big banks or they're just coming together because the regulations are forcing them to um, or the people are against the banking system because they're sold this story that the bankers are evil and everything the bankers are doing is bad and, and the central banks are trying to control it and they're trying to do a good thing and, and they need more power and, you know, and, and, and um, independence in order to control the banks properly. But it's far from the truth. The bankers aren't evil. They are doing what they're told to do. Um, if you don't control them, they'll obviously try their best to make as much money as possible because that's people's nature. Um, so that is the, the main issue. And the second issue is the centralizing effect that's going on. So what we need to do is decentralize it. We need to set up all these little banks. We need to uh, go against the centralizing effect and try to do better banking. Better for people, better for the planet, better for businesses. So why are the banks, as they are now, not doing a good job in terms of the benefiting communities? Uh, the incentive structure is one. The second is they are very large. So if you're um, you know, the CEO or senior management of a large bank, your shareholders demand certain growth each year. And let's say they want 5% growth to your balance sheet. They want you to be um, lending out 5% 5, 5 more uh, to your clients and your customers. What's easier? Lending out 5% more huge loans, you know, doing one, let's say, 100 million loan to a private equity company or doing thousands of 10,000 euro loans, which is easier. Well, obviously the one huge loan to this PE firm. 
Um, so it's, that's the first thing. It's, it's the size of a bank makes it very difficult for these big banks to actually do fair and, and, and uh, community-orientated banking. The second thing is the incentive structure is wrong. You know, they incentivize to make as much money as possible, um, lend uh, unproductively, um, lend to the asset price speculation, um, lending to these big P firms, rather than lending to these small businesses that really need the money. So for example, um, and I'll use HSBC as another example because I actually work there, <laughs> but all the big banks are the same. The small community, um, community companies, the small businesses in the communities, they can't get face-to-face -face meetings. There's no traditional ethical face-to-face -face banking happening anymore for these big banks. And they're shutting all the branches they're down. They're shutting all the branches down. Um, they're forcing everyone to go through the telephones, um, going through a maze of different buttons that you've got to press in order to get through to someone. And then when you're through to someone, you're through to someone different every single time. And if you apply for a loan, you're likely going to be rejected. That's pretty much the life of a small business, especially in the UK at the moment. But this is happening everywhere in the world. But where did it go wrong? I mean, banks did fill this function of throughout the 20th century, and now it's become what Richard Werner calls the Sovietization <laughs> of, of banking. Uh, why can it not be solved, uh, or how can it be reverted back to, uh, to how it used to work? So for anyone unaware, uh, Professor Richard Werner is the inventor of QE, um, author of Japanese number one bestseller, Prince of the Yen, and he's the chairman of Valhalla Network, which is why Oscar keeps mentioning uh, Richard Werner, <laughs> for anyone unaware of who he is. Um, he was my professor at university as well. Um, so this Soviet Sovietizing, uh, Sovietization, however you like to call it, of the banking system. So over the last 20 years in Europe, the number of credit institutions has halved under the ECB. You know, these big banks and big credit institutions have been acquiring the smaller players because that's how the system works. You know, you, you go off, you're aggressive, you buy up all the other ones, you uh, reduce the competition, you have more market share, and then what happens? All these small firms become part of a bigger bank, bigger firm, and then they just do big loans. You know, that's, that's how it works. You know, they close their branches, like you said. Um, so that's effectively what's been going wrong. It's just over the last hundred years, um, the UK used to have a community-orientated banking system. Um, that's been eroded. The Sparkassen still exists, but all the Spachassen in Germany is still exists. Fifteen hundred community banks there, still doing um, really well and helping Germany be a you know market leader for net exports and allowing small businesses in Germany to be um, hidden champions, i.e., market leaders in their niche sectors. Um, America's still okay; they're still doing uh, quite well with credit unions there, which are similar. They still have banking licenses and create money in, in uh, America. That's very different from the UK, by the way. Credit unions in the UK aren't banks. They don't create money. But in, in America, it's very different. Uh, so America still have this community-orientated feel to it. But that's still being eroded. So what needs to happen is we need to say, look, this isn't healthy. This isn't how you have a healthy banking system. Because the bigger the banks are, the more centralized the system, the more unproductive lending you do. Imagine a Soviet-style banking system where you have one central bank and that's it, pretty much. Um, you have one player making all the decisions, doing all the loans or whatever. You can't lend to small businesses. You can't really lend to any business because how can you go off and do the due diligence in each company for the bankers to understand that business and to know exactly what they're lending for and be able to visit them and get to that relationship and that trust? You can't. So the more centralised the system is, the worse the loans become, the more unproductive they become, the bigger they become to these big P players and the ones who are speculating on the financial markets which is all unproductive, results in big boom-bust cycles, um, or if it's credit for consumption reasons, which is what's happened 2020 to 2022, uh, you get huge amounts of inflation, um, which, which Richard warned about in, in March 2020 when he saw the central bank policies that were coming in, the monetary policies. So that's, that's the main 
the reasons and the driving forces behind it. It seems to me that banks today no longer have the qualification and the, the competence to judge what is a good loan or not. They, like the Soviet Union, just become administrators. Well, they don't understand either. Like I said, most 99% of bankers will believe that they're moving money from one person's account to another. So they yeah. won't even realise their role in society. They don't realise the power they have whenever they give out a loan. So when they just you know, give a 100 million loan out to a PE company or a company that's just speculating on the market, they don't realise that they're actually creating new money. So there's, there's uh, two types of credit creation. You've got credit for, financial um, for the real economy, which impacts GDP transactions. Um, you've got credit for non-GDP transactions, which like the financial economy, if you like. Out of the um, real economy, you've then got um, very productive and very unproductive. So, uh, for example, you've got credit for consumption, which is unproductive, but a GDP-related transaction, which results in nominal GDP growth, but huge amounts of inflation, and that's why you get the nominal GDP growth, and that's what's happened from 2020. You've got credit for um, GDP-related transactions that are productive, so, for example, resulting in new income streams. So this is mostly when you lend to small businesses. The small businesses use the loan, use the new credit in order to maybe grow their business in some way, create new income streams that they use to repay the loan. You get credit destruction after you repaid it. So therefore, GDP growth without inflation because the money's been repaid. It's all, it's all um, netted to zero. And then you've got credit for the financial. So that's non-GDP. Um, it goes into, let's say, the housing market, which isn't GDP related. Um, it results in these uh, markets uh, basically expanding in, in value um, and uh, all the money flowing into it from all the new credit creation. But at some point when the music stops playing, there's no more credit being created. People realise the value isn't actually the, the value on paper, if you like. The true value is much lower. That's when you get the bust. And then you get all these non-performing loans on the balance sheets of banks. They suddenly have um, huge amounts compared to their um, equity positions. They're very unhealthy. They can no longer loan. They can no longer function. And they need some sort of bailout. That's what happens. So people don't even realise this. The bankers don't even realise their role. So it's not just the education of them, because actually, why are they being educated like that? So it's not the education of the banks which is the issue. It's, it's who's educating them and why are they educating them like this? Why do they want them to think that, that banks are financial intermediaries? Um, and then the second issue is the central bankers. Why, they are in full control of the banking system. You know, they are not innocent. They know exactly what they're doing. They know exactly the role of banks and they know exactly which monetary policies work. Interest rates, not very important. But window guidance, as they use in Japan or macroprudential regulations in Europe or something similar to that, they always dress it up in some sort of term. Effectively, it's the central bank telling the banks what industries you're lending to and how much you're lending. So the central bank's in full control. If a bank goes against the central bank, the central bank can withdraw, you know, take away its license to create money. So no bank will do that. You know, they can suddenly say, you, you need to stop lending that amount. You're going to go lower in the rankings. So banks will fall in line and they'll do as they're told. So if the central banks want them to and want them to lend productively, they can force them to. But they don't. And what we've seen now with crypto especially what you're, to simplify what you've been saying here is that you loan out money to blow up asset bubbles that have no connection to any value creation in the form of services or products. Mm -hmm. It's really just a mirage economy that's being created by banks lending out money. Yes. Is that a correct assessment? Yes, and by lending we mean creating, of course. Yeah. It's called lending, but it's actually, the bank is actually purchasing a loan contract. It's purchasing a security from a borrower. So when a borrower comes into a bank, and this is how the credit creation happens, 
uh, there'll be a contract there. And what it actually is, is the bank is purchasing a debt instrument, basically a debt from the borrower saying, look, uh, it's an IOU from a borrower to the bank. They're purchasing that security and then they have accounts payable. They've got to pay that now because they've purchased it. So then what they do is they say, oh, that account's payable on our liability side. We're just going to make that a deposit. So now in your account, you will find 30,000 euros, let's say. But no money was transferred from that, from one person's account to that one. The balance sheet lengthened. All they did, they changed accounts payable to deposits. Only banks can do this because the license, the bank license allows them to do it. So that is how they create new money. They create new purchasing power. It's not loaning. It's not lending, moving money from one person's account to another. But, but when this purchasing power is not used to actually purchase something that is created, all that's done is that uh, real estate goes up in value, crypto goes up in value. Mm -hmm. What's the incentive for doing this for, for a nation, for, for, for an economy? Why would you want to uh, really create these boom and bust cycles? Well, it depends on which perspective you're looking at. If you're looking at it from a central banker's perspective, there's, there might be certain, um, they might be innocent in it. They might, you know, just be incompetent. They might not understand what they're doing. Uh, they might, you know, I, I don't believe that. I think they do know what they're doing. Um, so then you've got to look at, well, why, why, are they, why are they letting banks do this? Why are they telling banks maybe to do this? You know, why are they letting it go on? And, and that's where you go into the realm of, you know, speculation and, and you can't ever say for sure. But... It certainly seems that whenever there's been a banking crisis previously, a central banks have gained more power in some way. So they've argued this wouldn't have happened if we had X, Y, Z, if we had more power, if we had independence. We have no one that we have to answer to. You know, the central banks don't have to answer to anyone. In the UK, they don't answer to the government, they don't answer to the people, they don't answer to the taxpayer. No one. There's They're a, completely independent. It's a quote from Rothschild, give me control of the currency and I don't care who's in power. <laughs> exactly, yeah. So who, they who control the, the money supply effectively control the, the, the country. Um, so the incentive structure for central banks is not the same as the incentive structure for uh, the banks themselves and also for the people, for the small businesses and for the taxpayer. Um, so the incentive structure for banks is for the short term, they make a lot of money. You know, while the markets are going up, everyone's profiting. You know, it's easy to make money in a bull market. Um, you know, big, big bonuses for all the bankers, uh, they're doing as they're told. Um, the CEOs and stuff, they're doing as they're told by the regulators and everyone, so everyone's happy there. But for the small businesses, for, the, um, for those of us who, who are suffering, like the consumption, for example, when money is used for consumption and everyone who doesn't understand banking says, oh yes, they should be giving us money, you know, free money. Yes, please, we can't work because of the um, supply side um, artificially created supply side crisis um, so we can't work and we need to shut our business down because of uh, government regulations really uh, draconian government regulations forcing small business owners not the big businesses Asda you know Sainsbury's all this and, and Amazon can still continue doing business they can uh, still continue making money in fact they'll make more money because all the small businesses have to shut down no it's too it's too risky for small businesses to, to continue going on shuttle them down keep people at home um, so you know, it's absolutely ludicrous, really. It really um, is, and, and awful that they do it. So, so small businesses and and, and stuff, they then suffer because then you've got huge amounts of inflation because you've created all this free money and, and given it to people, but no one's paying it back. So you've got no credit destruction. So you've just got more money in the system, resulting in inflation. Um, or if you do the asset price speculation, you get the bust, which results in either a recession or something like that, which you can quickly get out of. But that's another conversation. Um, results in a recession 
which to be honest, for people in power, they don't care because they've got loads of money anyway. They, they do what they want, they get more power out of it, they control what goes on, they control all the levers. So all the you know, small business owners, all the people living uh, you know, month by month, paycheck by paycheck, they're the ones who are suffering. Um, suicide rates go up, inequality goes up, unhappiness goes up, unemployment goes up, everything just is awful following a bust and, and when you're going into recession. So how do you intend to solve this with Valhalla Networks? <laughs> um, we're at least attempting to, to help solve it. Um, I don't think we can solely, well we definitely can't solely um, uh, you know, solve it because the world is too big um, and even the SPAC has, and in Germany, 1,500 community banks, for us to grow to that size would take 20 years potentially. Um, and that's just one country. So what we're trying to do with, with Valhalla Network is we're trying to democratise finance by allowing the people to govern the, the, the entity that owns the banking system. So the people govern that entity through a DAO foundation, a decentralised autonomous organisation, uh, where the token holders are voting as to what's the best use of resources of this foundation, where do you set up more banks, um, and, and what staking rewards should be given out, etc. And what, and what do we use for money of the foundation? All these dividends that have come up, what they're used for, how much of it's used for charitable initiatives or um, something else. That's up to the token holders. The entity, the foundation itself, then owns the banking system that we're setting up. So we want to establish many small, locally focused community banks. So you're decentralizing the financial system. I, I see true DeFi is when you take the financial system and you decentralize it. You're not trying to compete with the current financial system. You're not trying to compete with the banking system because guess what? You won't. You won't win. You cannot compete with the central bankers. You're not, you can't really compete with central bankers or the, uh, or the banking system. You have to work with it. You have to plug into it. So that's what we're doing. We're going to set up many small banks that aren't competing with the big banks. The big banks don't care about small businesses. They don't look at them. They don't want to, they want, don't want to bank them. In fact, we're doing them a favor because they spend so much money on PR. Oh, look at us. We're, we're doing this to help small businesses that they don't have to do that anymore because we'll plug in and we'll say, we'll take care of small businesses. We'll look after them. We will cater for them. So we're going to set up many small locally focused community banks. That is traditional, ethical, face-to-face -face banking where local bankers are on the ground visiting local small businesses, working out what's the best solution for them. How can that community bank help that small business grow? And in turn, the community bank will make its profit. The small business will make its profit and grow and it'll be successful. Um, and then the 75% of each community bank is owned by this down foundation. So the people um, who are governing this foundation, all the dividends are flowing up to the foundation for the people to then govern. Um, and 25% of each community bank is then owned by a local charity foundation that's set up with it that then reinvests dividends back into local community initiatives, sport development programs, education. So it's really a community feel. It's a community bank that's helps small, help small businesses and then profits are reinvested back into community initiatives. But who is to say that the token holders are the most uh, capable to uh, allocate the funds effectively? There's the question. So they're not, they're not managing the banks. So um, this is some sort of confusion lies. The banks themselves are creating money. They have its own balance sheet. It has its own banking license. They're fully regulated and they're managed by senior bankers with lots of experience. The token holders aren't impacting that. They're not choosing, you know, that company you lend to, that one you don't, because that's not what you want. You want bankers on the ground who are experienced, who know what they're doing. They're the regulated ones, and that's the only way it can work anyway, because yeah. the regulators need to know who's in control of the bank and who's managing it. It's just the dividends that flow up, so the profits that come from a banking system. 75% of them go to this Dow Foundation. Of the token holders, effectively, the Dow Foundation, the foundation is the shareholder. So instead of it being a billionaire that's then just taking the dividends and doing whatever he wants with it, it's the foundation. So 
in some aspect, the governance of that dividend, it's, it's much less important because it, that's just a profit made from a bank. So if they squander them in some way, that's not as important as the banks themselves. They're the ones who are creating money. They're the ones who are helping the small businesses. The dividends are secondary. So then the token holders are effectively governing these dividends, saying, right, we want to set up these banks in this area, so we want to do another primary token issuance, we want to raise more money, add set up five more banks in this country or whatever. That's up to them. They will vote on it. And then the stake reward this year, let's say it's going to be 15%, so 80% of, of the dividends are going to be used to support our staking rewards or some airdrops or something like that. And 15% might be used for a charitable initiative. Um, so that we want to, so instead of all these charitable initiatives happening for each bank, we want to do a DAO-wide, you know, a big charitable initiative such as setting up a university, an online university, free to access, online education, high quality university education for anywhere on in the world. You get the top lecturers to record material and then have it translated into multiple languages, free to access for anyone in the world. And that could be um, through the DAO itself, but the token holders could vote for that. You know, that's what's so exciting is that in five to ten years, the dividends coming up to this foundation will be so large in number because you set up, you've set up a phase one bank, which is a different business model, then you set up the phase two community banks and they will start generating profits, that the dividends are going to be so huge that the token holders can vote to do whatever charitable initiatives they want to do, whatever big mission they want to dream of, you know, they want to spend 20 million, 30 million setting up this charitable, you know, Dow University, they can do it. That's up to them. But to, to go back to how you differ then from a conventional bank, mm -hmm. it's the ownership structure of the bank that is fundamentally different. Well, and what it's actually doing is lending to small businesses, our bank. Yeah, that's your business idea. Yeah. I mean, you choose to lend to businesses and you need to do this profitably. Yeah. It better than which the existing mega banks are unable to do profitably right now. They can. They, they, they can, just... but not as profitably as they do for for big loans. That's it. So the community banks are still profitable. The big banks will be more profitable because they're doing bigger loans, less overheads and stuff like that. Community banks are still profitable. It's just we, the big banks will never do what the community banks do because the shareholders don't want it. You know, they want more profits and stuff like that and they're focusing yes. on the bottom line. That's a given. But, but uh, what you are suggesting then is that you're going to go into a niche of borrowing money to small and medium-sized businesses, which is quite costly in the sense that it's work intense. Yes. And you, you need, you're going to have a lot of defaults. No, not necessarily. Not necessarily, but, but I mean, it, it is, you don't necessarily have to have a different ownership structure of the bank to go into this niche of, of uh, no. lending. No, and we're doing it different in the UK uh, through Local First Community Interest Company that Professor Richard Byrne and I are the directors of, where we're allowing the councils, we want the councils to be the owners, and we want them to be the shareholders of the banks. So there's a different, it doesn't matter the ownership structure as such, it's more what's the business plan, what's the business model, and what are you doing? But the default rate of small businesses, that's another sort of like yeah. fallacy out there. They're not riskier at all. You know, the, de the default rate for small businesses, you're still doing a bank's bank, um, a regulated procedure for deciding if it's a safe and good company to lend to. So they still have to have a track record, they still have to have collateral, they still have to have the owners who either have done this before or they're known to, you know, they're known and they're not. So you, you've got to have some sort of uh, regulated procedure to deciding if you're going to lend money. But the default rate can be under 2% for small businesses. And then you have over collateralized because you might have their, um, their company commercial property. Um, you might even have, and in a lot of cases for small business loans, you have personal guarantees and stuff like this. So that if everything did go wrong, and don't forget the bankers don't want that because the banks don't, with community banks, they want to work with small business. So even if they're struggling, they don't immediately, immediately say, like big banks do, we're going to take everything from you. 
you know, we're going to strip you of all your assets. They say, what can we do? Flexible repayment. Okay, yeah. so you're not repaying it this month. When can you afford to repay? What are you doing to get out of this situation? What can we do to help you? Let's look at your financials. Let's look at your next few months of growth plans and stuff like that. What can we do to help you? So it's a very community orientated, you know, um, cooperative uh, field between the bankers and the small businesses. So the default rate is actually quite low. Then you have loss given default close to 0% because you have over collateralized. So if you multiply loss given default by default rate, you have quite a safe banking model, which is, so it's not the, the risk, it's just the profitability. It's, and the profitability is very high in, for the mega banks. Mm, uh, yes. And just not as high for community banks. Still very attractive, you know, a 10 year ROI of over 150% or so. So still an attractive business model. I mean, that obviously goes up after 10 years. It goes up each year as well um, because the first few years you're not profitable because you have to set up and it's you know, a much more small ethical. So it's, it takes a few years to get up and running. Um, but it's still a good good business plan. 150% in 10 years isn't, isn't a bad business to be Certainly better than automotive. <laughs> better exactly. than construction. Yeah. So um, uh, isn't there a way to like reform the existing industry banking industry to um, adopt these philosophies uh, I mean which are really traditional philosophies that the bank should serve the community well the banks are so big um, I guess one way of doing it would be to you'd have to effectively take away the power to create money for certain industries you know that's the only way because they still you still want them to cater for the clients or effectively say an arm of your bank is, is effectively a non-bank financial institution but it's, it's difficult um, they're so big now that they're not going to be able to just break up and lend to small businesses or anything like that they can try but it would be better either to open more branches to again they would have to decentralize their own business effectively they'd have to try and set up many entities under itself or many branches and say each of those is managed by so that's one way of doing it but I would say a, a, a better system would be to plug in to the existing one to encourage, because you've still got productive lending to big businesses. You've still got productive lending to, to um, corporates, to mid-sized corporates and large corporates. Still productive lending. Yes. It's just a large amount of lending that big banks do tends to be unproductive. Tends to be for either um, for, the, for asset price speculation or something like that. To PE firms, for example, they get huge amounts of lending. So you can say to the big banks, just stop or reduce the amount of lending that's unproductive and increase the amount that's productive. Lend more productively to large companies because you still need large banks to do that. Small community banks can't lend 100 million out to a large company or provide um, 100 million trade finance you know, credit line or something like that or um, you know, a, a huge RF facility like a 50 million uh, receivables financing facility. A small, small community banks can't do that. Mm -hmm. So large banks have their have their place in, in the banking system and they're very important. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and they can cater for retail clients as well, like community banks can't, because retail is very expensive. And in the UK, um, the, 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 you know, the average customer stuff, you don't pay for your current account. Outside of the UK, many countries do, but in the UK, they're free current accounts. A community bank can't support free current accounts because they're not hugely profitable and they cost a lot to run. But big banks, which are making more money, can. So they have their place. They're very important. It's just we need to reduce the amount of unproductive lending and increase the amount of productive lending and make sure there is someone in the banking system like us who are coming in to cater for these small businesses that otherwise aren't being looked at and aren't being looked after. It's a fascinating situation we find ourselves in, I think, at this point in time. 
mean, when you look historically, when you have revolutions, it's because capital becomes too concentrated and you have no productive capital. And what you have now is that it's not flowing to the most um, vital parts of the economy. And um, Richard Werner, he mentioned that Deng Xiaoping in 1979, expanded the community banks to thousands of banks across China from being one central bank. And that this explains uh, the ex explosive growth that you had in the economy. Um, I mean, would you say that we're in a similar situation now in, in the West that China was at, in, at that point? <laughs> I don't think we're as bad position. Um, it's certainly not as centralized. Um, you know, Deng Xiaoping, he, he went to Japan, he learned, you know, he learned from the Japanese how they had miracle growth. He, he flew out there um, and effectively sat down, had dinner. You all have to do it informally, you see, to learn the truth. And, and Richard talks about this a lot. He was out there for 80s and 90s and early noughties. To learn the truth from the Japanese, the, the official narrative isn't the truth. That's not, that's just the official narrative. To learn what's actually going on behind the scenes, you have to have a drink. You know, you have to be very informal, go out for dinner, have a drink with them, and then they'll talk to you. Then they tell you what's actually going on. And Deng Xiaoping learned the truth. He learned that the secret to high economic growth is lending productively, setting up many banks, and lending productively to small businesses and other businesses, but lending productively. So he then went back and adopted this and, and increased by huge amounts the number of banks in, in China, increased the amount of productive lending. And although people will question the the sort of stats that are coming out from China saying, oh, perhaps they're overstating their GDP growth and all this. And yes, maybe they are, but they're not overstating it by, you know, they're not doubling their D GDP growth or anything like that. They are a high um, economic growth country. So, um, and, and Japan certainly was as well in, in, in the 70s and 60s and stuff like that um, until uh, the Western powers and the Bank of Japan collaborated to make sure the whole system was, was torn down and, and suicide rates went up and everything, which is all criminal, but... But anyway, <laughs> I want to um, hear your thoughts on uh, CBDCs, and since we're talking about central banks here and uh, blockchain. Yeah, so central bank digital currencies are effectively a PR. Um, you know, it's it's effectively PR. We already have digital currencies. You know, they're not a new thing. You know, every and people question and people have arguments about or debates with about CBDCs. I always say, well, what have you got in your bank account right now? Yeah. You know, they're like, oh, well, yeah, okay, that's digital, I guess. Uh, and then you ask them, what's the real benefit of central bank digital currencies? And they can't really ever. I've never had someone actually give me a proper answer. So if you're listening out there getting annoyed because you think, oh, I know the benefit, well, write to me. You know, I'm happy to hear it um, because I've not had that conversation with someone yet where they can really show to me the benefits of central bank digital currencies. However, there are a lot of risks to them. So if there's loads of risk and not many benefits, what's the point? You know, why is that coming in? The risks are they're programmable and they will be programmed so that they can know exactly what you're doing. And, and effectively, retail CBDCs, wholesale CBDCs are something different, but retail CBDCs, if they are, it's effectively the ref jumping in and then competing with the players that they're regulating. You know, the regulator is gonna say, right, banks, we regulate you, and also we're now gonna compete with you. How is that fair? How is that allowed? So anyway, they want to do that, and they want the people to bypass the banking system and put their money in with a central bank. Now, what this will do is give the central bank full power, now, depending how they are going to plug this into the banking system, this has the potential to completely destroy the banking system. I don't think they'll do that, but if they wanted a fully Soviet-style banking system where there's one central bank, then they will. They'll destroy all the banks and just have a central bank left. 
I don't think they'll do that. So they might sort of allocate funds to each bank. I don't know exactly how they'll do it, um, if, if they'll do it at all. Um, but you put your money in with a central bank. They know exactly what you're doing. They know if you travel five kilometers away from your home and want to buy fuel, you want to buy gas, you want to buy a sandwich or something, they can say, oh, you've traveled too far today, you've used up too many carbon credits, you know, your carbon allowance, you have to go home and you can only eat within 500 meters of your home, something like that. They'll be able to do whatever they want. They'll be watching everyone's transactions um, and they'll see into exactly what you're doing and when you're doing it and where you're doing it. And people should be scared of that. You know, they, they always sell this, um, you know, security in all this you know reducing your privacy to oh well you're more secure and they always scare people into and this normally comes around with a crisis by the way is they'll scare you into giving them more power you know it's like the whole um covid pandemic for example um i don't know if you're allowed me to say that unless you might have to bleep that out (laughs) just in case it then gets censored um but that's scaring people you know it's scared people and we won't i won't go into whether or not i agree with that and stuff like that but i'll just go into the fact that it scared people and therefore people were more likely and more accepting of regulations and more accepting to be told that you have to stay at home and you can't see your family, you can't see your friends, you can't live your life because they're scared. It's V for Vendetta. If you've not seen that movie, watch it. And I'm surprised that people allowed it to happen considering V for Vendetta is out there and it exactly displays what, what the governments were doing, scaring people and then allowing them to, you know, the governments to do whatever they wanted. Um, the same thing with CBDCs. If they have another crisis and another crash, they might use that to say, um, you should put your money in with a central bank, it's safer. Put your money in, buy CBDCs. Or they may, might just one day switch over and say, you have 24 hours to sign up, otherwise you've lost all your money, your wealth. You know, They might just say something like that one day, and who's, who's stopping them? They're not accountable to anyone, they're not accountable to a government, because they've got their independence. So it's a very scary thing. They had a lot of backlash earlier this year um, from the banks, who are standing up saying, no, retail CBDCs are not good. So then they said, okay, we won't do that, we'll do wholesale CBDCs, which is like a foot in the door. I'm hoping the banks and everyone will still keep, you know, keep a cup of us. Everyone will talk to each other about it. People will make people aware that CBDCs are the biggest threat to um, the non-banks at, because in general, the people, it's the biggest threat to us and it's the biggest threat to the financial system that I think has ever existed so far. In terms of Valhalla Network, and people sometimes say, well, if you've got this view on central bank digital currencies, isn't that a risk to Valhalla Network? Of course it is. However, Let's say um, an investor had their money and they, they invested into Valhalla Network and we set up a bank and we set up a few banks and then this happened. We are the least of their concerns because if this comes in, the rest of their portfolio has already hit zero. Businesses everywhere will go bankrupt um, and their lives, you know, everyone's lives will be pretty much ruined except the central planners. They're happy. They get what they want, more power. But so, you know, if people are saying, oh, well, that's a risk to you, yes, but it's a risk to every single industry out there. We're not you know, we're, we're probably the, the safest industry for this to come in because, like I said, they might have some way that they can help the banking system. Um, and banks are generally uh, the sort of safest industry you can really get into. But, um, yeah, it's, that's my sort of views on CBDCs. Yeah, it is fascinating. What I'm hearing is that, you know, the banking industry should be there to support a nation in its, in its value creation. But now... It seems like with the social credit systems and uh, that it's about controlling people rather than... Well, look at China. Yeah. Look at what they're doing to their people. Look at their social credit system and stuff like that. Do people want that in their countries? Because CBDCs allow it to happen on an even worse scale. So... 
that, that's the that's the funny thing that uh, it seems that that's what people want. I was just uh, reading the other day that the ESG narrative was pretty much established by BlackRock when they went out to say that uh, unless you conform to certain ESG criteria, you will not be getting investments, and uh, they control thirty trillion dollars of uh, yeah. of investment around the world. And um, when you look, who is supporting ESG? I mean, it's the it's the sheeple. Mm. Well, yeah, they're bought into it and, and it's easy to lead people on through uh, mainstream media. Um, look at the last few years, it's, it's a great example. Um, however, I don't think that people want central bank digital currencies. I don't. No, um, not if they understand it. it. Well, that's true, yes. And I think generally, those who don't understand it still don't want them because they don't understand it. You know, so, like, yeah. um, at the end of the day, people are quite conservative when it comes to money and their wealth and stuff. They don't want to try out new stuff and then, because it's, it's risky. Um, so, I, but people don't want central bank digital currencies. Um, that's pretty clear. At least everyone I, you know, most, and, and Twitter is a funny space, but I only things I see on Twitter is anti-CBDCs. And that's, you know, and I've followed people over the last few years and I've always seen pro and against COVID response and COVID regulations and stuff. But in this case, I'm always seeing against CBDCs. You go to the European Central Bank Twitter space, look on their channel, look at the replies to any podcast they do or anything. It's always negative. Sometimes I'm on there, <laughs> but um, as in uh, replying, but it's always negative. It's like the World Economic Forum. Why do they turn off comments? Because they'll always be negative. So the people don't want this. But the mainstream media will spell out that they do. You know, oh yeah, this is great that people want this. You know, 70% of people have agreed to this through our YouGov survey that we've done, which is not at all biased and not at all made up and not at all, um, you know, not to be not to be taken seriously. Um, <laughs> but it's it's all lies. The people don't want this. The people, yeah, at least they don't want these central planners um, controlling every aspect of their life. So how do you see um, if this would get implemented and you would like to... Um put up a stand against it, how could you trade without CBDCs? I think it needs to be before CBDCs come in. I don't think you can take up a stand after they're brought in because that's much more difficult. I think it has to be beforehand and people just have to voice and talk about it and, and make their opinions clear. Um, the more people who are aware of it, the more people who will start to be disgruntled and talk about it in pubs and stuff like that amongst their friends once they start trying to introduce it. And they won't be able to introduce it if people are against it. If enough people say, no, we're not standing for this, we're not standing for this level of control in our lives and this level of breach of our privacy, they won't be able to do it. Because if they try and bring it in, then people will find ways to go. You know, there's always a black market. There's always some hidden way. There's always hacks that people do, you know, that the good hackers manage to do. There's always ways around what central planners want. Take the gov you know, regulations and government, for example, in the UK, there's always ways around those regulations. You talk to coppers and they don't know half the law that they're trying to, you know, that they're trying to um, uh, be the authority of. Um, so there's always ways around stuff. Um, I don't think it'll be brought in. I'm really hoping it won't. I'm hoping people are awake to it. Um, but one way, like I was talking to a chap called Jim Gale in the US, um, really nice guy working on food forests, which are local, um, local, uh, effect, well, local food forests, local areas of ground which are used to plant trees and grow local food for local people. Um, stuff like that is all ways to work against the system because you are effectively taking power away from the supply chains, from these big companies, big corporates that control the supply chains, get to put whatever they want in food and people have to buy it and it could be unhealthy and people wouldn't know. 
they're taking that power away and they're trying to set up something which is local, healthy, organic food. Um, so stuff like that is always, you know, people are starting to wake up. A lot of people are doing good work, what Jim's doing in the, in the US, he's doing it in Florida as well, which is a great state to be doing it in. Um, and he's, he's very successful so far with it. And a lot of people are signing up to it, a lot of people agree with it and, and want it. But um, hypothetically, I mean, if you do have CBDCs, you could really improve humanity in banning all all the destructive behaviors, I mean, cigarettes, soft drinks, gambling, prostitution. They could ban that now, but they don't ban cigarettes, for example, because it makes a huge amount of tax revenue, at least in the UK, I don't know about every country. Um, now, yes, you've got black market and stuff like that, but I don't think they want to ban that. Um, prostitution, um, gambling, all that, how many of the central planners do all that? Do they really want to ban that? Do they really want that to stop? No, I, um, I, I said hypothetically. Yeah, yeah. Hypothetically, um, you could just stop all trade of anything that is... You could, and that's scary. Like, again, this is where the, oh, well, we'll do it for good reasons. But then if you give someone power, what, you know, absolute power corrupts, absolutely. Yeah. Um, what's to stop them from saying, oh, we want you to only buy certain foods and we want you to only buy it from these big companies that we have deals with. Or my cousin owns this, you know, this, this... Yeah, this is a very silly example, but let's say my cousin owns this company. You can only buy stuff from that company instead of the other, his competitor. You could do whatever you wanted once you've got that power. Um, yes, there's, you know, there's some, like you said, but you could argue there's some positives that you could do certain stuff. But then I think if they really wanted to, they, can, they could control a lot of that already. Um, they just don't want to and they don't really care. And I think it's, at the end of the day, there's a certain level of people, you know, it's our life at the end of the day. Everyone has their own life and they need to stop giving up control to all the central planners. Now there's obviously some stuff which everyone should agree should be banned and should be enforced and everything. But there's a certain level of stuff where it's like, well, who's to say that that's against, you know, who's to say that's wrong? You know, why is buying cigarettes, for example, why should that be banned? Why should I not be able to choose that I want to smoke it? Um, cannabis is a great example because there's this huge debate going on about that and everything. Why is cannabis? Why should that be illegal? And I used to be very pro against cannabis because I was brought up in a very um, police-oriented family, um, and and you know the police are good and the government's good. And that's how I used to think a lot. The 2020, I changed a lot of my views. Um, seeing how the police were enforcing draconian and really unfair rules, such as you can't sit on this park bench and have a coffee because of the COVID scare. Like, and they were enforcing that and giving people fines. Like, that's disgusting policing. Like, why, who's to say that you should control people's lives to that degree? And people, and the police were loving it. Some police officers, not everyone, but some of them were loving it. They were loving this power. So I've really changed my opinion on all that. And, and when it comes to cannabis, I, I think I've changed my opinion on that as well. Um, that's a whole other debate. But, but these are questions of democracy. That's why mm. we vote and why we have social norms. Uh, we have a society where you agree on a common denominators of behavior. Um, but only some, you don't agree on everything. I never agreed to have money and weapons sent to Ukraine. You know, so there's a certain level of, yes, again, if, if I'm running for MP in the UK and I lie, and I can lie as much as I want and people will vote for me, and then I get into power and I do nothing that I've said, there's no, there is no, um, I won't get arrested, I won't get kicked out, there's no backlash. I can do that if I want to. And MPs do it. They do it all the time, they lie. They lie to the public and they get votes. How is that democratic? How is that democratic at all? You can lie and get voted in based on that, and you can do whatever you want. That's not democratic. And like this whole Ukraine situation, yes, you could say, oh, well, we voted for these leaders so that they make these decisions, but, but there's some decisions you're looking at it, and there's a lot of dodgy stuff going on. And I would say a lot of people in the UK wouldn't agree with a lot of stuff government do. 
the illegal immigration happening in the UK, for example, yeah. a massive problem at the moment. Um, and the people are hating it. The people are against it. And yet the government's doing nothing against it. If it was truly, you know, they were representing their constituents and they were representing the people, they would do something about it. Because over 50% of the people in the UK, I will bet all my money on it, would vote against and vote for harder, stricter, um, you know, um, But the government doesn't on. help. I mean, Brexit yeah. didn't do very much. No. Um, well, I think... I think they have moved away from Europe and European regulation stuff has been dropped and the UK is doing more. Um, so I think that is good. Um, and I think, I think the UK wanted that. I think the government wanted that. Uh, you know, some, some MPs wanted it. And I think Brexit's a good thing. At the end of the day, we're talking about decentralisation. So anyone who thinks Brexit's a good thing, uh, sorry, anyone who thinks European Union's a good thing, but they're trying to be in Web3 and do decentralisation, it's, it's not the same thing. You're taking the European Union trying to combine all these states under one, that's not decentralization, that's centralization, that's giving a few people more power. You should be saying, and, and people use arguments, oh, but we want free trade and we want open borders. You can have that, even without the EU. You can have agreements between countries. There's nothing stopping a country from making an agreement with another country saying, we'll have open borders, we'll have free trade. There's nothing stopping that. But the European Union is awful because it's all these countries under the ECB, for example, and under the European Parliament, and under these bodies that try and control the whole, whole member states, and it's taking away current the currency from all these member states as well. You no longer have your own um, power over your own economy. So Brexit's a fantastic thing, um, in, in my eyes, and, and I think every member state could follow. <laughs> yeah, but I guess this ties into the discussion of central banks. They're looking at a single currency and uh, really no autonomy between the different nation states uh, in how they control the economic zones. One world government, one world central bank, one currency. Yeah. But that's not, I mean, in a macro perspective, to improve life, quality of life, you have to uh, increase productivity. I mean, it's not like the West is leading in improving productivity and uh, what industry is left in the US, for instance, or the UK for that matter. But they could, if they wanted to, any time they wanted to, they could. And that's what you need. Yeah, you community, community banks, banks productive credit creation. Exactly. So at any point, they don't need to do one world government, one currency, any of that. That might be their arguments they make, but if they wanted to, they could do it today without any of that. Every country um, having its own borders, having its own way of doing stuff, can have productive economic growth and be very successful if it wanted to. It can have free trade, open borders, it can have whatever it wants. But there's no reason why that you should have one government one central bank, one currency, or anything like that. That is just draconian. It's going to be, you know, you're giving the power to a very few amount of people. And when that happens, <laughs> you know, people take advantage. So let's hope that doesn't come in. And let's hope one currency, one world currency doesn't come in as well. I hope so too. So uh, what brought you to Dubai? And when are you back? Oh, so I'm flying back on the first, actually, to the UK. Um, just raising money, spreading the word of Valhalla Network, uh, trying to close our second private round. We did our seed round earlier this year. We did our private round one. Both of them were completely full. Our, our seed round was oversubscribed. So now we're in private round two, and my only job is, is um, raising awareness of what we're doing and the mission and the ethical side to it and, and how it will help economies and how it will help the people and help small businesses, while at the same time it's a very good investment opportunity uh, for people uh, to be these governance token holders. Um, and, and yeah, that's my only job at the moment is just getting the red, uh, getting the rest of the funds in um, so that we can apply for our first banking license, um, submit that next year um, while the team are, are building on the tech solution and, and preparing the banking license application documents. How when do you close the second round? 
so product round two, closing it, hopefully, I wanted it at the end of this year, but that's not going to happen because of Christmas time and everything quiet. So it'll probably be end of January and then open the third private round, which is a much larger round, um, sort of March or April time we'll probably open that. And then we want to get the banking license application in next summer. So How big are the tickets for the investments? 30k is the minimum. So I try to keep it as, because in total, we're raising 22 million. We've raised 7.6 million so far. Um, and it's a very, very different investment opportunity compared to most crypto startups because investors actually have a 20% limited loss. If we don't get our banking license, they get 80% of their money back because of the fact that you need to raise all this money for regulatory capital for your bank license application, tier one capital for the bank to, to grow and stuff. So you need all that money there, but you're not spending it. Meaning if we fail in some way, 80% goes back to investors. If we succeed and get that stamp and we get the banking license, fantastic. Um, the mission is, is underway and, and we've got a bank up and running and profitable and operational. Um, but if we fail, yeah, they lose 20%. So it's a very different investment opportunity. And because Professor Richard Werner has a lot of fans as well, I really wanted to, and although we're raising a lot of money, I wanted to make it as accessible as possible. So I wanted to bring down the minimum ticket size from something like 100 grand, which would be more sort of reasonable for when you're raising 22 million in total, to 30,000 so that more people could engage with it, more people could join the round. 30,000 pounds. Euros, euros. But with the current state of things, they're all pretty much one anyway. <laughs> but yeah. But that's still quite a lot of money. I mean, I can see a lot of people wanting to invest in this uh, venture that don't have 30,000. No, but then every single investor in the private round, you have contracts. You've got to do, um, it's not, at the moment we haven't got like a KYC AML sort of automatic thing. So we're using a partner for it, which means they have to do KYC and AML on each of these investors individually. Um, I like to speak to every single investor, make sure they understand what they're investing in, how it will work and what the benefits of, you know, to everyone is. So I like to have a very good relationship with the investors, meaning I can't do that for 5,000 ticket sizes at the moment because it would just be too many investors, too many phone calls, because sometimes the smallest investors are the ones which, well, a lot of the time, the smallest investors are the ones which give you the most, you know, ask you the most questions. Whereas the largest investors tend to get it very quickly, understand what you're doing, just have a few questions in a couple of hours or something, but then invest a whole lot more money. Whereas the smaller investors, you can spend an hour and a half on the phone and they'll might not even invest. <laughs> so, um, uh, if you fail to raise the money and get the banking license, uh, do you automatically pay back eighty percent? Is that by is it held in escrow? Or what no, escrows. I did look at escrow to start with. Um, however, it's a pain and it's costly. And our largest investor didn't ask for it. Wasn't requiring it. In fact, our largest three investors didn't ask for it. So at that point, I was thinking, well, all this, like you wouldn't put 30,000 in an escrow, for example. There would be no point in that. You wouldn't put 100,000 euros in an escrow, really. Um, so when you've got your last investors not asking for it, you know, Rich and I, we, we're both directors of Local First in the UK. We're very public figures. So there's a lot of credibility and reputation attached to the project. Um, so investors tend to, to understand what we're doing and they, they believe and they trust what we're doing and trust that we will return, 80, you know, if we, if we don't need it anymore, we're not just going to keep it and pay it to ourselves or something, we will return the money. Yeah. Um, but that's buy to buy anyway, because we're going to get the banking license, we're going to be successful. So. <laughs> yeah, it seems pretty straightforward. Well, getting a banking license isn't straightforward. It's the you know, most regulated industry, the hardest license you could get. However, if you've got the people in the team who understand how to do it, You've got the money there, You've, you're speaking and working with regulators and it's a good regulator, um, and you're doing things by the book, you can get a license. Um, it's not impossible. Um, so we're very confident in it, we're confident in what we're doing. Um, 
but yeah, and then when we go public, that allows everyone then, regardless of their ticket size, to get involved. So that'll be after we get our banking license or just before, depending on market conditions and how things are looking, uh, we'll go public uh, with a much larger raise. And that's when anyone, any ticket size, can can buy into a project and, and be still an early investor. So. I hope you're one of them. <laughs> Best of luck. Thank Great. You Thank you very us. much for having me on. Really appreciate it.